Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Revelation chapter 6 is where we're going today, but just a quick recap from last week. So last week we covered Revelation 4 and 5, two chapters in, in one week. And last week was amazing. It was the throne room scene. Last week you've got this throne, and the one who's sitting on it is God Almighty. And we learned how this throne is the center of power in all of the cosmos. That there is no backroom deals, there is no politics, there are no nation collaborations that are higher or hold more authority or more power than what's going on in this throne room scene in Revelation chapter 4. And we find out in Revelation chapter 4 that in this throne room scene, the one who is on the throne has this scroll in his hand. It is God Almighty, and he has a plan for the end of the ages. He's got a design for how he wants history to end, how he wants the sin of mankind to come to a close. He's got a plan for how all this is going to eventually stop, but there's one problem. Nobody is worthy to open this plan. And then John hears that a lion is worthy, and when he looks, he sees that it's not a lion, it's a lamb, and the lamb is the only one worthy to take the scroll. We know that the lion is Jesus, the lamb is Jesus, and the lamb goes forward, takes the scroll, and today he starts breaking the seals. So this is, this is fascinating where we're going today. And the reason why it's fascinating because Revelation chapter six is the lamb starting to break the seals, and the act of him breaking the seals is him exercising his authority. Now remember, this isn't a live scene from heaven. This isn't literally what's happening in heaven. John is given a vision, and these symbols in this vision correspond to real things transpiring in heaven. But for us to think about what's happening in heaven this way um, is doing injustice to the vision that God is giving. Jesus isn't literally a lamb. These symbols carry so much weight that dip all the way back into the database of the Old Testament. When John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, when Jesus came to get baptized, that is the language that John is seeing when he sees the Lamb. When John sees the Lamb, he in his mind is thinking about all of the times, all the way back to the Old Testament where there's a temple and there's these sacrifices and that this Lamb, a Lamb had to be slain in order for the blood to cover the sins of the people. He's going all the way back in that data, database. So this one Lamb, this one picture, it, encapsul it encapsulates God's redemptive history plan all the way back to Israel. That's why these symbols are here. Jesus isn't literally a lamb, but this lamb says way more about the work of Christ than just saying, man, I saw Jesus take a scroll. You follow? That's why all the symbolism is in here. So what we're gonna see today is the lamb, who is Jesus, exercising his authority over the earth. 
He has authority because he was killed and then conquered death, came back to life, but then the story doesn't stop there. He ascends into heaven and we're told that he takes his seat of authority and the Father gives him the authority of the nations. That's from Daniel chapter seven. So Jesus currently right now has authority over all of the earth, the entire cosmos, every nation, every ruler. He is in authority over the earth right now. It's not something that will happen in the future. It is something that is happening right now. He is the big man in charge. And what that big man in charge is doing in Revelation chapter six is starting to break the seals to begin the process of accomplishing the Father's end time goals of bringing history to a close. What you see around you will not be forever. Everything you see has an expiration date. This building, the person sitting next to you, you, the chair you're sitting in, that expiration date might be today. You might fall right out of that chair because the legs just might give out from under. Every, literally everything you see, the clothes you wear, everything has an expiration date. I just scared half of you in here, just like, do I need to? (laughs) I think the chairs are okay. I just want you to grasp how finite, how sensitive, how unpermanent everything you see is. Nothing is gonna last. Everything has an expiration date and what we're seeing today is the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, exercising his authority over the reality that everything has an expiration date. And today we're gonna see him start breaking these scrolls, these, these seals over the scroll. And as he breaks these seals, we see that as he exercises authority, trials are released on the earth. Now follow me here, because what you're watching is Jesus exercising authority by breaking the seals, and as he does, the events in heaven have an impact on the events of earth. Him exercising authority over the earth has impacts on the earth because the earth doesn't want Jesus in charge. This earth has already decided that they want to be their own God and make their own choices for their own life. And so Jesus, as he exercises authority over the earth by breaking these these seals symbolically, the earth is going to rebel against his authority and that produces trials and tribulations on the earth. Now here's where it gets fun. These trials are a demonstration of the earth rebelling against his authority, but as we start getting into Revelation 6, things get really confusing as far as how these things work out and when these things work out. So today starts the day where I'm probably gonna start just offending you weekly. And if you come back for more, then man, good on you. But the truth is that there are, there are multiple ways to read Revelation 6 to the end of the book. One through three, that's easy stuff. That's just churches. No one's arguing about how to interpret those scriptures. Four and five, that's throne room scenes. No one has an issue about Jesus being the Lamb of God and he's got authority over the, but you start breaking the scrolls like, okay, well, how do we interpret this? There are multiple ways to interpret this, and the reason why is because we are starting to wade into the territory of prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet, 
or has, or has begun to begin uh, fulfillment. And when you talk about things that haven't actually transpired yet, most of us are trying to work through the text and try to pinpoint and understand how these things are working out, and we don't have it figured out. So, what I mean by that are there are four main ways that you can read the book of Revelation from chapter six to the end of the book. The first way, and there's all kinds of fancy, like scholarly names for this stuff, but frankly, they're terrible names, so I'm not even gonna give them to you. But the first way to read this is that everything, Revelation six, moving forward, you can read through the lens of the past. Everything we're about to read has already been fulfilled in the first century, in the time of Nero, Domitian, the rulers of Rome, the early church. That's a view that many Bible-believing, loving Jesus Christians hold, okay? The second view is that everything that you read from six on is, his, is, is history. So as we start reading through six to the end of the book, we start seeing these events and we're like, oh man, that was the 1700s. And that's, that happened in the 1800s. And man, that was like 1960, I was there, I remember it. You start associating the things that are happening in the book with things that have happened throughout history. That's a view that a lot of people hold. Another view that a lot of people hold is it's futuristic. All right, so you've got past, you've got history, and then you've got future. Everything that you're gonna read from six on is just future. Hasn't happened yet, but it's gonna happen. And then there's another way that you can read it that is essentially um, just symbolic. That the things that you're reading in the text are symbolic of the entire church age. These things that are happening in the world are symbolic of things that have not just happened at one period of time, they're symbolic of things that have happened all through the period of the history of the church. Now, these views are held by really smart guys, guys who are smarter than me, who really love Jesus and really love the Bible and know Hebrew and Greek, but they come out on the other side of it with different views. My point is that whatever view you hold, you can align yourself with people who love Jesus and it doesn't mean you don't love Jesus. I'm saying that you can hold a view that is different than the person sitting next to you or that is different than my view and we can still get along and we can still be friends. At this church, you don't have to hold any specific particular view about how the end times are gonna unfold in order to be a member here. Lots of us disagree. I hold one view. Uh, we've got some of the guys who are actually on the pastoral candidate team. Some of the pastors and leaders here at the church hold a different view than me on how the stuff will pan out. That's just the way it goes. There, are, there is a traditional view about how the events of this transpire, not just the reading of the book, but the, specific, uh, the specificity of how the, the, the events of the tribulation will plan out. When there's these events, and we'll start getting into them. There's seals, there's trumpets, and there's bowls. There's these acts that God pours out on earth. Some of them are just uh, acts of his wrath. Some of them are pronouncements of judgments on the nations. When do these transpire? Is it a seven-year period? Is it like a three-and-a-half-year mark where things get really bad? There's this Antichrist figure. Uh, some people that I really love that are Christians hold the view that the church is gonna get raptured, they're gonna disappear, they're, they're gonna pop out of their clothes and their clothes are gonna be folded neatly on the edge of their beds. They're out of here before any of this trans tri tribulation even begins. 
The church doesn't see any of it. The purpose of the tribulation is for Israel to get reconciled and all that stuff. And then Jesus will return with his church at the end of the tribulation. None of us will have to suffer any of that stuff. That's a view that some of you may hold in this, in this church. If you have any background in, in uh, Southern Baptist denominations, any background in Calvary Chapel, if you're a huge Kirk Cameron fan, all of those, you probably hold those views. Another view, uh, which is actually the view that the, traditionally the church has held since the, the birth of the early church, was that the church would not be raptured out, that the church will go through the period of the tribulation. They'll be here during all of it because they're going to be witnessing to non-believers, telling them about Jesus. People will get saved during that great tribulation. But at the end, when Jesus returns, that's it, game over. When he comes back, and he resurrects the dead and the church meet him in the sky and then they follow him to Armageddon to, for the war that's gonna end all wars. When, when that's said and done, that's it, it's over. I personally, and we talked about this in Matthew week 21 when we studied Matthew 24 in the Matthew, in the Matthew series. I personally hold a, a traditional um, uh, post-tribulation view that says that the church is gonna go through the entirety of the tribulation. We'll be the only ones who are witnessing uh, uh, and the goodness of Jesus. It's gonna be a small remnant because we're told that an antichrist is gonna rise up, that there's gonna be a great falling away from the church. So there'll be fewer of us than there are now. But at the end, Jesus is gonna return. He's gonna raise the dead um, and we're gonna meet him in the air and we're gonna follow him to Armageddon. That's the view that I hold, but some of you in here hold a different view. That's fine. You can still come here. We can still be friends. We can, you can rib me out in the hallway about, man, I, you're wrong. And I'll, and I'll just tell you, man, if I'm wrong, then I'll give you a high five on the way up. <laughs> but, 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 if there is even a shred of possibility that we are going to go through it, I think it is incredibly important for us to prepare for that kind of stuff. Because one way for the majority of the church to fall away is to be convinced that they will never suffer any tribulation or trial or pain and to have someone come along, infiltrate the church and tell them I have a way for you to never experience tribulation and pain if you just follow me. And all of a sudden there's great deception and the majority of the church falls away because they were convinced that things were gonna happen one way and they didn't. And all of a sudden, they're, they're presented with the opportunity to either feed your family and save your own life and worship the dragon or to pledge your allegiance to Jesus and be headed for your faith. And if there's anything that you can learn from the field of psychology about people who are able to withstand traumatic experiences, the people who do better are always the people who mentally prepare for those kind of situations in their mind. They walk into a room and they just think through some of the things that could possibly transpire so they're not frozen the moment that they happen. And I, as your pastor, love you. And if you want to hold the view that, man, <laughs> this is a waste. I don't know. All of this is for, this is, this is just going to be like some kind of um, thing that people who are here during the tribulation are going to discover and they're going to have to sift through it. That's fine. I can love you and that's fine. But, but I hold a view that I, I got to get you ready for some stuff. 
And if, and if we don't go through this stuff, that's fine. Your kids will be ready for it because you prepared them. And if their kids don't go through it, then your grandkids are ready. But there is, there is something about the way Jesus talks about his return that forces the church to prepare in a way that we are currently not because most of us, I think, act like we are actively sleeping and not actively building a kingdom. And so I think that there are some things in this text that have a wake-up call feeling to us. So that's my disclaimer. We, we may disagree on some of the stuff, and I'm going to do my absolute best to show both sides of the coin as we go through with this. Some people hold this view, some people hold this view, and then I'll show you the view that I hold and why I hold it. I'm, never, I'm not going to just tell you this is what I believe, and then just trust me. I'll walk you to the scriptures, and I'll show you why I believe what I believe, and that's why we're going to look at a lot of scriptures today, because we're starting to get into some interesting uh, material starting in Revelation chapter 6. So that's my introduction. Let's get into it. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1. So we're picking up right where we left off last week, Revelation chapter 5. The elders have fall, are, are, are falling down. They're worshiping because they see what is going to transpire at the end of the age when heaven has finally come down and everybody's worshiping. And now we, we, we go from this wide view back down to the zoomed view. John is now not looking at the entirety of all of time and seeing what the earth is going to be like when Jesus returns. He's now zoomed back in on what the Lamb is doing right now. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 6, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now let's pause there because we're going to go through each one of these seals. We'll only get up to six because that's where chapter six ends. But I want to pause after each one of these seals and walk through what we're seeing. So the first thing that we see is that when the lamb breaks the first seal, and remember, the seal is on the scroll and the scroll is God's end time plan for bringing history to a close. The lamb is starting to, un to peel back those seals and accomplish God's end time plan. And as soon as he breaks the first seal and demonstrates his authority over the nations, one of the living creatures shouts, come. Now there's a lot of debate about this uh, living creature shouting out these words. The creature could be calling forth the rider of the horse. Rider on the white horse, come, now's your time, let's do it. First seal's broken, get to it. The living creature could also be shouting at the lamb, come. Which is kind of the interpretation that I like looking at even more because what you're seeing is as last week, the four living creatures are representatives of all creation, and Paul tells us that creation is groaning for the returning of the Lord. And so as we see the four living creatures, these representatives of creation crying out, it makes most sense to me that they're crying out for the Lamb to come. They want what's happening in heaven down here on earth, and so they're crying out to the Lamb, come, breaking that first seal. Oh, man. It's getting good because we're, we're, we're now one seal closer to Jesus coming back. Come. They're crying out to the lamb to return. Now, it doesn't have to be one or the other. It could be both since both parts of God's creation are included in the last day's plan. It could be the creature crying out to the rider, 
come because that rider has to ride in order for the lamb to begin his plan. Or he could be crying out to the lamb, come. Or he could be crying out to both. We just don't know. But I think both of those uh, interpretations hold some weight, and I lean a little more towards the second one. But once the living creature shouts, come, a rider on a white horse is released on the earth. Now let's check out this white rider. This white rider has a bow in his hand. So he shoots arrows from afar. He has a crown that was given to him. The bow and the crown traditionally in scripture are symbols of authority and power. So you've got this, this rider who's on a white horse, who's got authority and power. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Jesus is the rider on the white horse with authority and power. In fact, in Revelation 19, 11 through 13, we're told that the rider on the white horse comes back at the end of the tribulation and he is fixing to wreck shop. He's got fire in his eyes, he's got a sword in his mouth. There's just one problem. This rider on the white horse looks kind of like Jesus on a white horse, but it doesn't exactly look like Jesus on the white horse. This rider doesn't have a sword. His eyes are not a flames of fire. There's only one crown. We're told that the Jesus that returns in 19 has got many crowns on his head. There's no blood that he's covered in like Jesus returning in 19. And this guy is using brute force to conquer. We're told that he, was, he went out to conquer the nations. This rider looks similar to Jesus, but he isn't Jesus. What do we call someone who looks like Jesus, but isn't Jesus? An antichrist. Now, I don't think that this rider is the antichrist, I think this writer is symbolic of releasing antichrists on the earth. I say that because John says in 1 John 2, 18, you've heard it said that an antichrist is coming, but we have already seen antichrists coming now, just like Jesus told us there would be. This writer also, and we're gonna see here in a minute, I'll cover this in the next horse, seems to be one of the riders of the four riders that we see back in Zechariah. Do you guys, if you did your homework leading up to this message series, you read through Zechariah and you probably saw uh, in a couple of the chapters, like chapter one, there's these riders on the horses. And I think around chapter seven, you've got these riders are pulling chariots, but it's the same horses, same riders. I don't think this is the Antichrist because we see these characters in other places in the Bible. I think they just have authority to release things on the earth. And one of the first things that we see from John, from Jesus' mouth, John quotes it, is that as the lamb starts exercising his authority over the earth, the first thing that we're gonna start seeing is imposters popping up everywhere. Now hear me, I don't just mean somebody standing up and saying, hey, look at me, I'm an Antichrist. Or worship me, I'm Jesus. There is some of that. But what does Jesus offer? Salvation, reconciliation before God, peace, atonement for sin. Some men stand up and offer that in an antichrist fashion, but guess who else offers that? Nations, governments, systems of power. 
They operate functionally as an antichrist because what they're offering you is salvation and atonement for sin. And we can get you right before God. Who's the God? Oh, we're the God. I'll make you right before the nations, before me, if you just follow our ways, if you just assimilate, if you just forsake your beliefs and take on our beliefs. You see where I'm going with this? When the, when, when the lamb exercises his authority, one of the first things that is released on the earth is people that are imposters rising up and taking the role of Jesus and offering to the nations what only Christ can give. Let's get to it, chapter three, uh, six, verse three. He says, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and out came another horse, and this horse was bright red. Its riders were permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So the lamb breaks the second seal, and a rider on a a red horse is released on the earth. And this rider is given a great sword, and his job is to remove peace from the earth. His goal is to spread violence and war. Now, I said just a moment ago that this is a database reference. We're starting to talk more about horses. In Zechariah chapter one, and I I may have said Zechariah seven, it's actually Zechariah chapter six, there's this vision that Zechariah sees of these men on these horses. And one of the things that these men on the horses do is they patrol the earth and give a report to the Lord on the things that are happening on the earth. So these guys are responsible for the things that are taking place on the earth, accomplishing God's plans over the people of the nations. And when Zechariah sees them, What has happened is the end of the exile has taken place. Israel is back in the promised land and they are starting to rebuild the temple. And Zechariah sees a vision of a rider on a red horse come back before the Lord and give an assessment of what the nations are doing while Israel is rebuilding. And the rider on the red horse says, we have ridden across the entire world, we have seen all the nations, and all the nations are at rest. There's only one problem. God doesn't like that the nations are at rest because the nations are rebellious against him. Israel rebelled against God, so God raised up the nations to punish Israel. The problem is that we're told that the nations went too far in their judgment. And God is going to punish the nations for punishing God's people. So the rider on the red horse in Zechariah reports that the nations, even though they have a debt against God Almighty because they went too far in punishing his people, they're at peace. They're happy, they're fine, everything's good with the nations. And we go through history, through uh, all the way up to the early church, and what we see is that the nations don't stay at rest, they continue to go further and further in oppressing God's people. Not just oppressing Israel, now they're starting to oppress the church. Zach, will you cut the air conditioners for me for me? 
they continue to oppress God's people, and in Revelation chapter six, we see that once God starts exercising his authority over the nations, one of the first things that we see is God says, the peace of the nations has come to an end. You have oppressed my people enough. So I'm going to exercise my authority, and one of the first things that I'm gonna do when I do this is I'm gonna remove the peace that the nations have had because it's time for judgment. Let's get into chapter six, verse five. It says, when he opened the third seal, I heard the, living, the third living creature say, come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for denarius, that's a day's wage. So a whole day's work buys you a quart of wheat and three quarts of barley for a day's wage, but do not harm the oil and the wine. So the lamb breaks the third seal and we see a rider on a black horse who is also part of the original crew that were riding the earth back in the time of Zechariah. This rider on the black horse comes out and he doesn't have a weapon in his hand. He has a pair of scales and his power is to impact the economies of the world. His goal is to disrupt markets and to drive up the cost of essentials and keep non-essentials cheap. See, you need wheat and barley to make bread and actually have food. You can't live without food, but all these non-essentials, things like oil and wine, you can get along without those. And this rider on the black horse comes in and exercises authority over the nations, and he starts messing with the economies of the nations as a form of judgment, and he drives up the cost of things that you need to survive, and the things that you don't need, you have an abundance of. Everywhere you look, all the wants you could possibly imagine are at no cost. You've got more than enough of things you don't need, but the stuff you do need to survive takes you a whole day just to make enough to buy it. You see what's happening when these seals are released? All of the systems and structures that humans put their faith in, God says, no. There's no security in those things. Peace among the nations, with one break of the seal, I can take that. If you put your faith in the economies of this world, all Jesus has to do is break one seal and everything gets flipped upside down. And then all of a sudden you can't buy a carton of eggs. But guess what you have more than enough of? Social media is free. You can get all the likes you want, but you can't feed your family. Do you see how odd this looks? And how peculiar this is when the lamb starts exercising authority over the nations and the nations don't want any of it. The, the salvation that they promise, they can't deliver on the things that we need most. Let's keep going. Verse seven, it says, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was death and Hades followed after him. And they were given authority over the fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence by wild beasts of the earth. So the lamb breaks the fourth seal and a rider on a pale horse 
which in Greek actually means like yellowish green, is released on the earth. And this rider's name is death, and the grave follows him everywhere he goes. And his goal is to release death on the earth in the form of violence and famine and plagues and disease. Now he's not given authority to kill all of the earth. He's not even given authority to kill half of the earth. He is given the authority to kill a fourth of the earth. But when he starts riding famines, plagues, violence, it's everywhere you look. Let's go to verse nine. This is when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Oh, what? I never read that before. The lamb breaks the fifth seal and John sees an altar in heaven. Now that's not weird. Hebrews chapter nine tells us there's an entire temple in heaven. In fact, the temple that was built here on earth is a model of the temple in heaven. The earthly temple was never the real temple. The real temple has always been the temple in heaven. The temple on earth was simply a symbol or a parable of the temple in heaven. That's why Jesus, when he ascended and spread his blood on the mercy seat in heaven, it never had to be reproduced here on the symbol here on earth. It was done on the real thing up in heaven. So the real temple up in heaven has an altar, probably the altar of incense, because we're, no, we're told that the altar of incense here on earth was this place where, where incense was burned and smoke would rise and it would fill the holy place. But in heaven, the altar of incense, we're told, is filled with the prayers of, prayers of the saints. And so John sees under this altar, that, which is an altar that collects the prayers of the saints, he sees dead saints who were murdered for their faith, crying out to the Lord, how long before you avenge our blood? And these prayers are rising up into this altar up in heaven. And what John hears them, the answer to their prayer, is that they are given a white robe and they are told to rest a little longer. So in the vision, John sees these martyrs who were killed crying out to the Lord, Lord, how long do we have to wait until you're gonna avenge us? And, and, and he says, a little bit longer. And they're given white robes, they're ushered up into heaven and they're told to come up here and wait in the presence of Jesus until when? until even more of God's people are murdered. Come up here and rest a little longer until all of the cup is filled, until all of the amount of martyrs have been killed for their faith, until every one of the ones who are supposed to lose their life for Jesus will lose their life for Jesus. Come up here and wait until that will take place. John is making it clear in this vision that the end, the end, 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 the end of all time will not come until the full number of martyrs have been killed. Now that seems shocking to us in America, but that is not shocking to the church in China. 
That is not shocking to the underground church in Africa. To the underground church in the Middle East, not shocking. Because if someone finds out that you're a believer, you're counted among these. And to us, we're like, ah, I don't like that. But it's a reality for our brothers and sisters in most of the world where the church is growing. I would just like for you to take for a moment and consider that where the church is growing the fastest and the largest is all in, a, in locations around the earth where the church is under extreme tribulation and trials and the threat of death. And where the church is growing the least and where the most people are heading out, it's the church that is not under tribulation. So what do you think God's purposes in tribulation are for his church? To purify those who are sitting in pews every Sunday. Because if you're given a choice to maybe, move, maybe lose your life and go worship Jesus or just stay home and play it safe so no one knows that you're a believer, what do you think you and most of your close friends will choose? Don't go to church, that's foolishness. You could die. Well, it's a good thing I serve the guy who raises the dead then. Because now I'm no longer afraid of death. What can they do to me when my God has removed the one threat that anyone can hold over my head? Look, this is radical. This is not the gospel that is preached in most locations in America. The offer for most locations, most churches in America is come and Jesus will wash away all of your problems. You will have no more issues in your life. What John is seeing is completely contrary to the church reality that we live on a daily basis. And the question I have for us is will things continue on the path that they have been and we'll get to keep on meeting like this? Or can we look at how quickly things have changed over the last two years, five years, 10 years, and really honestly say, with ourselves, say to ourselves, yeah, the, like, we're gonna keep on going like this. Or, or, or is it possible that things could drastically change and things in your life could look more like our brothers and sisters in other parts of the globe? I think it's just worth consideration. Let's go to verse 12. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free. This is everyone on earth. This is the richest of the rich to the poorest of the poor. Everybody hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us 
from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? As the lamb breaks the sixth seal, he sees the cosmic events that declare the day of the Lord as here. And I say the day of the Lord because this is how the prophets in the Old Testament talked about this event. You can go to Isaiah 34, 4, Ezekiel 32, 6 through 8, Joel 3, 15 through 16, Habakkuk 3, 6 through 11, and it describes in some detail all of the events that we just read there and all of them talk about the coming day of the Lord. The day when the Lord returns to punish the wicked. To end human history, to bring all things to a close, there is an expiration date on everything you see. But here's what's interesting. It's not just mentioned in the prophets, it's also mentioned by the, the actual words of Jesus. I want you to turn to Matthew 24 and look at verse 29 through 31 real quick. Actually, let's, let's do this. Let's go start in verse three. Matthew 24, verse three. Deviating from my notes just a little bit, but I want you to see this. Matthew 24, verse three, it says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, that language, end of the age, last days, they're talking about the same thing. There is no like multiple last days. Last days is last days. End of things, end of time. They're talking about something that's gonna happen in the future that in the minds of the Jews, they knew we're gonna, what was gonna happen and the disciples wanna know, Jesus, give us some details. We're good friends. We know that you know what's coming. Let us in on what's happening. And I want you to listen to what he says here. Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. There we go, sorry. I smacked my uh, mic pack, turned it off. Verse four, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. What does that sound like? Seal one, the Antichrist. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place but the end is not yet. What does that sound That sounds like seal two. Red horse, wars, rumor of wars. But it's not the end yet. These things have to take place before the end comes. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, earthquakes in various places. What does that sound like? Seals three, four. Entire economies being upset. Famines everywhere you look. Pestilence, death. Nations rising against nations. But these are just the beginning of the birth pangs. Verse nine, and they will deliver you up to tribulation and you will be put to death. Oh man, what does that sound like? 
Seal five, martyrs. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for our name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise up and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Okay, so we've got seals one through five. We've got Jesus mirroring seals one through five, and we're told that these things are gonna transpire, but the end hasn't come yet. These are just things that have to come leading up to it. But what follows there, so he ends essentially where, where seal five would have been, and then he starts talking about the abomination of desolation, who is the, literally the Antichrist. And we're gonna see him rise up and we're gonna see him do all kinds of things. He talks about that, but jump down to 29. Now, do you remember seal six? Seal six was great earthquake, sun becomes black, full moon like blood, stars fall out of the sky, fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it's shaken by a gale. Verse 29 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the tribulation of those seals, that the tribulation of the Antichrist, everything that's gonna transpire up to this point. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What does that sound like? Seal six. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. What does mourning look like? Does it look like them begging the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the lamb. And they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the heavens with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. Oh, that's interesting, trumpets. Guess what the next seven things released on the earth are? Trumpets, seals, trumpets, bowls. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Seal six. is the time is up seal. Seal six means it's too late. His return has begun. The only thing left after seal six is trumpets and bowls of judgment and wrath and Jesus shows up. And the question that John sees before him when he sees the sixth seal open up is, who, who can stand? Who can stand when time is up, when the lamb has started to return, when, when, when everything in the cosmos is starting to shake, when there's great earthquakes, when there's literally stars falling from the sky, when the sun stops shining, when the moon goes dark? Who can stand when everything outside of us starts shaking and you can't find, a gun won't help you, your food supply won't help you, nothing will, your, your 401k can't help help, nothing that you put your hope in can help you when the cosmic forces of the world and the cosmos start shaking. Who can stand in that time? Well, the answer to that question is nobody can stand, which means that your decision about Jesus is the most important decision of your life. 
It's not where you go to college. It's not what job you get. It's not who you marry. It's what you decide about Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who has authority in heaven to exercise authority over the earth. That's the question of the day. What do you do with this Jesus who has authority over all things and, is, and has a plan on his calendar for when he's going to return and end history? What do you do? Who can stand when all your plans mean nothing if Jesus says, today's the day I'm coming back? This is the great issue. And I don't just mean it's the great issue because of a salvation uh, perspective. I mean it's the great issue because of our entire obedience to him. This last seal being broken is the, oh no, it's too late seal. Things have already started to transpire and things are starting to fall apart. All the time that I thought I had to have that conversation with my neighbor, it's done. All those times that I thought that I could, well, I'll just make a decision about Jesus next week at church. If that seal breaks before this period of time, too late. That's why I say this is the thing that you need to make a decision about. This is the great issue of your life. What do you do about the God who is the only one worthy to break the seals and enact God's end time plan and bring cosmic destruction on the entire world so that he can bring about a new heaven and a new earth? And will you be there? What I want for you to wrestle with today is... Are these realities gripping me in such a way that my life is reshaped because of it? When I look at the realities of what Christ has authority over, does it change anything about my thought life, the way I live, the way I talk to people? If this is what is told from us from the Bible about what is coming, am I wasting my life on things that don't matter? Now, the reason why I think many of us don't wrestle with this and don't think about this is because we are convinced, maybe we've been taught, maybe we look at this, maybe our interpretation of this, we, th- we are convinced that this stuff, this is sometime in the future. I don't have to have this stuff shape the way I live because it's so far away from where I live now. It may not even be in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime, and so this is not something I read often, I don't consider it often. So let me put something in perspective that may just grip your heart a little bit. Now we're getting into that territory where where my interpretation of this, it may deviate from where your interpretation is, but I wanna show you from scripture how the New Testament writers thought about these events, and I just wanna present something to you for your consideration, that's all I want. I'm not trying to change your mind, I just want you to think about this for a minute. If you'll put up on the the screen Acts 2.17, this is Peter's message at the day of Pentecost. He quotes Joel, and he says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream, dream dreams. Peter used this verse as an interpretation of what was happening right then at that moment. And he said, in the last days, guess what? Look around, see what's happening. Let's go to the next one. This is gonna be 1 Peter 1.20. This is, this is a letter that Peter wrote. He says, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, 
but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Let's go to Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these, these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. I'll give you one more. Go to 1 John 2. Children, it is the last hour. (laughs) And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, There will be a literal antichrist. So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. How do we know it is the last hour? Because the antichrists have already arisen. Now, when were all of these things written? All of these things were written in the first century. All of these things were written within 50 years after Jesus rose from the dead. The New Testament writers viewed every moment following Jesus' resurrection and ascension as the last days. The last days are not something in the future that we're all sitting around waiting for and maybe hope that we won't go through. The last days are already here. The last days started when Jesus ascended from, uh, uh, from earth, sat on the throne, took authority, and began to break the seals. The moment he took authority, the first thing he did was start enacting God's end time plan to bring things to a close. Every period of time, we right now in 2022 are living in the last days. And I don't just say that because we're on the heels of COVID and we're not studying Revelation because like, oh, it's the hip thing to do. It feels like the world's falling apart and the economies are crazy. Like, we're not doing this just because of that. We're doing it because it literally is the last days biblically, which means if you read the seals If you read Jesus' commentary on things that will come before the end, if you read the New Testament writer's understanding of the last days, it seems to me that we're at least five seals deep in this thing. Now some of you are just like, "Mm, nope, no, 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 don't you. Look, all I'm saying is that from, from the Bible, it seems to me that the moment Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, it seems to me that we've got all these imposters popping up that want to take the role of Jesus that aren't Jesus. We see wars and rumors of wars, we see famines. It seems to me that the horses have been riding for a long time. And it seems to me that our brothers and sisters have been dying for a long time. It started in the first century when the apostles were hung on crosses upside down. It started in the first century when our brothers and sisters were burned, fed to lions. Their voices have been crying out for a long time. How long, O Lord? And they were given a white robe and said, just a little longer, more of my children need to die because the indictment of the nations need to continue to rack up. So it seems to me that there is we're, we're right up on seal five. Seal six definitely hasn't broken yet. There's not these cosmic powers. But if you follow Jesus' commentary, there seems to be this interlude at the end of the martyrs and the introduction of this Antichrist figure before that last seal is broken and then the trumpets and then the bowls of wrath and then his return. And I say all this to say this. 
Would you live any differently if you looked at the days we are living in now as the last days and not something that's coming maybe in your lifetime, maybe not in your lifetime? Is there a sense of urgency that you could leave this place with that you maybe you didn't walk in with? If I told you that a category five hurricane was headed to Florida and it would be here soon, would you be spending most of your time watching television or would you do what we always do and make a run on Walmart and Publix and buy all the water knowing that you're not gonna drink it anyway? (laughs) There is a sense of urgency that we can live with if we understand the times that we live in. That's why Jesus says, man, let the reader understand because this is something that's going to take place at some period of time in the church age, and if the church isn't ready for it, they'll fall for the guy who comes into the temple, which is us, and says, man, follow me. Is it really that big of a stretch for us to see the church get swayed with false doctrine to the point where they give themselves to an antichrist and not the real Christ? Can we really not see that? I'm pleading with us today to just consider the possibility that we are deeper in this thing than we might be, and if that's the case, then you might be running out of time. Is he coming back tomorrow? I don't know. Is he coming back in your lifetime, your kid's lifetime? I don't know. All I'm saying is that you might not get another shot to tell your coworker about what's coming for non-believers and people who reject Jesus and this world who says, I want my way over your way. You might not get another chance to say, I'm going to let it all go. I repent and I turn to you today. This might be your shot. That is the kind of urgency that the early church lived with. And I pray that it's the kind of urgency that we can start living with. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.